The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Looking back at the Senate's budget week, one of the most engaging debates came late Wednesday night when many folks were preoccupied with the Celtics game, Game 5. Colin Young, you were the reporter uh, on the floor for that debate. Can you walk us through some of the um, play-by-play? Definitely, Sam. I want to give you some highlights of this because, it, like, uh, like you said, this debate took place Wednesday night, starting at about 9.30 p.m., stretching until uh, 11 o'clock. Most people, including some in the chamber, were focused on the Celtics-Cavs game. Uh, and really, this is one of the most uh, uh, interesting debates of the Senate Budget Week. So the debate centered around an amendment sponsored by uh, Senator Jamie Eldridge of Acton. Uh, The amendment was essentially a pared-down version of his so-called Safe Communities Act, which limits uh, state uh, law enforcement's involvement uh, in enforcing federal immigration law. Eldridge uh, set up the amendment this way. So, Sam, this issue is obviously uh, a fairly controversial one. Um, This isn't the first time the issue has been um, uh, debated on Beacon Hill. Uh, Eldridge offered it as an amendment, but, of course, he also has a standalone bill that would accomplish many of the same goals. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Bruce Tarr took to the podium next, uh, and he uh, really sort of went heavy on the emotion, uh, saying he was deeply disappointed that the Senate uh, found itself in the position of uh, having to vote on that amendment, which he said uh, essentially is not ready for prime time. So, Sam, Bruce Tarr also said that the amendment wouldn't be considered by the House and wouldn't be accepted by the governor. House Speaker Robert DeLeo and Governor Charlie Baker affirmed both of those this week. Uh, But a handful of senators, including Sal DiDomenico of Everett and Joe Boncori of Winthrop, said that basically they don't care and that it was time for the Senate to take a vote and show where it stands on the issue. Here's Boncori. So after about 90 minutes of deliberations on Wednesday night, the Senate ultimately uh, voted 25-13 to adopt the amendment. There were a handful of Democrats who joined the seven Republicans uh, voting in opposition. We had 11 senators take to the podium to speak on this. Uh, Two senators uh, gave sort of personal perspectives, uh, being immigrants themselves, Senators Vinnie DiMacito and Dean Tran. And it was really a a 90 minutes of full debate that wrapped up this way with uh, Senator Ryan Fatman of Webster.
hear a pin drop here tonight. Every single person is listening to one another's concerns. An emotional debate for sure. Thanks for walking us through, Colin. And full audio of the debate and audio from throughout Senate Budget Week is available on our website, statehousenews.com. That's right. Have a great weekend. The Senate took a new tack on charter schools during its budget deliberations this week. Past movements to raise the cap on independent charter schools through the legislature and via the ballot box had failed in 2014 and 2016, respectively. So, Andy Metzger, you were on the floor Tuesday night for this debate. Fill us in. Well, the Senate said that unless and until the state makes good on its obligation to reimburse public schools for the revenues they lose when a student switches to a charter, the Board of Education can't approve any new charter schools. Uh, now the state has continually uh, fallen short of its obligation to reimburse uh, public schools. So if this became law, it would mean either a substantial increase in funding for some local public schools or no new charters. Um, this has, of course, thrilled the uh, teachers unions and uh, school committees. And the Public Charter School Association warns that it would put a halt to a form of education that the association says has helped put uh, students from different backgrounds on more equal footing. Of course, to become law, the House would need to agree to this in conference, and Governor Baker, who's a charter school proponent, would be able to veto that section, even if it's in the final budget. So what can we expect around the corner? The House historically has moved in the other direction on charters, seeking ways to expand their use around the state. Uh, there's no indication that that uh, perspective has changed much. And the Senate budget amendment is sort of linked to a bill that the Senate passed earlier in May that would try to push the state to dramatically increase funding for local schools. The Massachusetts Teachers Association president, Barbara Mataloni, told my editor, Mike Norton, that the amendment and the foundation budget bill are about holding the state accountable for funding promises. Um, when Mike asked about how they plan to advance their cause in the House, she said that reps, quote, need to figure out who they're representing. So that's a potential battle brewing. And the Senate budget would also require the Education Department to consider a charter school's effect on the local school district's finances, right? That's right. The Senate amendment was sponsored by Somerville Senator Patricia Jalen, and she learned about six years ago when a group tried to apply for a charter school in Somerville that the Board of Education will not uh, consider what that charter's approval would have on uh local finances. Of course, there's substantial impacts on a local school budget when a charter starts drawing those students away because the money generally follows the student. Um, so she's hoping that that will be taken into consideration when, when these decisions are made. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Sam. After a seven-month-long search for a new UMass Boston chancellor, the process collapsed last weekend when all three finalists withdrew from consideration. Katie Lannon, what happened and what's next? Well, we saw UMass President Marty Meehan announce the, the triple withdrawal on Monday, pointing fingers at the faculty as he did. He said that the, some of the faculty had offered sensationalized critiques of the candidates and their qualifications, and that in turn led these three out-of-state candidates to back out. What's next from here is very much an open question. President Meehan says the reopening of the search is a no-go right now, in part because of this very public end, and in part because he says they tapped the talent pool that there is. A new interim chancellor is in place for now to kind of hold things steady for the next year. 
So what's the reaction been to all of this from the UMass Boston community? Well, and this makes sense, they're not happy. I think it's important to note that it's not a monolith of the UMass Boston community. That's the phrase we keep hearing, the UMass Boston community. But I think it's safe to say there's different perspectives within that group of faculty, staff, students, alumni. One professor who I talked to this week said they feel betrayed by the president's office. And job number one for that interim chancellor, Catherine Newman, will be to repair the trust there. UMass Boston, in a lot of ways, the people there feel left behind, and that's been building for a while with the school's debt issues and most recently UMass Amherst's Mount Ida acquisition. We'll hear probably more next week as several speakers from UMass Boston plan to address a committee of the Board of Trustees. And of course, the thread running through this week, the Senate budget debate, and Colin and Andy have already shared aspects of uh, this Senate budget week. Katie, you were on the floor when the Mount Ida deal actually became an issue. Yeah, it does seem like really in any issue this week, there was a Senate budget connection. And the senators still seem pretty unhappy with the Mount Ida closure and the acquisition of that campus by UMass Amherst. Uh, Senator Mark Montigny has taken to calling it the UMass Amherst's new Mount Ida Country Club. So what they did is they added in an amendment that would require colleges or universities to notify the Board of Higher Education about certain money troubles, about plans to close, merge, or acquire another campus. We'll, of course, have to see, like with anything else, if that survives conference committee talks with the House. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam. Massachusetts took another step toward offshore wind energy this week. Editor Mike Norton is here to tell us about it. What's the news, Mike? Thanks, Sam. Uh, For the past month, we've known that the state and its utilities would select its first possible offshore wind partner. And on Wednesday, we learned that Vineyard Wind was picked to supply 800 megawatts of electricity emanating from turbines that may someday spin about 15 miles south of Martha's Vineyard. So the project, it's backed by a Danish fund management company, was the big winner in this procurement. But to our surprise here in Massachusetts, one of the other bidders, Deepwater Wind, was also picked Wednesday by the state of Rhode Island to build a 400-megawatt offshore wind farm. The dual announcement sort of amplified offshore wind's potential in the area and gave a shot of confidence to environmentalists and climate change activists who have been clamoring for bigger commercial-scale renewable energy sources. Now, a third potential project, Base 8 Wind, which was a, a partnership between the Danish firm Orsted and Eversource, it was not selected, but it could still be in the mix for the next procurement since the 2016 state law in Massachusetts calls uh, for going after 1,600 megawatts of offshore wind. So is it clear sailing now, Mike? I would not say so, at least not yet. You know, we've seen big offshore wind announcements before in Massachusetts. Going back eight years ago, former Interior Secretary Ken Salazar approved a 130-turbine, 25-square-mile wind farm in Nantucket Sound, describing it as, quote, the final decision of the United States of America, unquote, and saying he was very confident that it would move ahead despite opposition to it. As we know now, it did not move ahead. The current plans call for construction of Vineyard Winds project to begin in 2019 and for the turbines to become operational by 2021. The project's a lot different from Cape Wind. The climate for renewable energy seems a lot more favorable, and the project supporters are very confident about meeting that timeline. But we know by now that seeing is believing. Remember, this is the same state in 2010 was on the verge of passing a landmark law 
to make it easier to stand up land-based commercial wind projects, only to see the whole deal fall apart. Vineyard Wind still has a lot of work ahead of it, and we'll be watching to see what happens as it deals with fishing industry interests and any others who may try to stand in the way of the project or see changes to it. We'll be watching. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Sam. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.